You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Kim. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm not complaining. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Timothy B. Lee, a longtime writer about economics and tech stuff. Um, you've written for, you know, Slate, Vox, Washington Post, and so on. I think you were on staff at Ars Technica for a while. Yep. Um, more relevantly to today's conversation, you've got a newsletter called Understanding AI, uh, which I guess, now that's a Substack newsletter, although it has its own URL at understandingai.org. Is that true? It's, it is Correct. on Substack. Yep. Um, and that kind of grows out. You, you also have a... a Another newsletter that has I, I, has that kind of blossomed into this or something, the economics newsletter? Yeah. So um, in 2021, I started a newsletter called Full Stack Economics, and I did that for about 18 months and it went pretty well. Um, but when uh, ChatGPT came out, um, I was just really impressed by how well it worked and um, started to think this is probably going to be a big thing I should be writing about more. And I think there's a different enough audience for writing about AI versus economics that it made sense to have a different newsletter. And so I put full tech economics on hold and I'm basically doing understanding AI full time now. And um, I think I'll probably continue for at least a few more months um, with that newsletter. Okay. Uh, so you may bring that to a halt and return to the other one or the, I guess you don't know. They may, they yeah, may I don't know. It's, persist. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a, like an entrepreneurial thing. I mean, if, mm. if the AI newsletter is much more popular, I'll keep doing it. If it, if interest peters out, I might go back to the economics. Um, yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure exactly. But right now, I'm just very interested in the, what's happening in AI. So I'm, you know, just interested in, in keeping writing about that. Yeah, so am I. So I'm really uh, looking forward to interrogating you about this because I think you understand more about it than I do. For one thing, you have an actual background. You have a, a, a master's degree in computer science from, from Princeton. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So like you would know a microchip if you met one on the street, unlike me. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, and just out of curiosity, what did you specialize in there? Would I even understand the answer? Yeah, so I was at a um, center for IT policy at Princeton. So it was oh. an inter interdisciplinary center between the computer science department and the public policy school. Um, and I was in a group that mostly focused on computer security. So like they did some like voting machine hacking and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was briefly, I, I did participate in the machine learning reading group for a while. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so I did, I did a little mm -hmm. bit of machine learning stuff. It's interesting because... When I was doing that reading group back in 2010, um, there's a lot of different machine learning methods, of which neural networks was one of them. But it was definitely it was seen as a bit of a backwater. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't yet clear that that was kind of going to be the thing. I mean, now everything's based on neural networks, um, but it's right. really changed a lot since I, um, you know, was was a um, a student of computer science 13 years ago. I guess it was right. So let me try to get the the, the, the straight. So. Uh... Deep learning is a subset of machine learning. And then are neural networks the only form of deep learning? Is all deep learning neural networks? Yes. So deep. So neural networks is um, a, a neuron is just a mathematical function that takes an input and gets an output. And you train it by seeing if it got the right answer. And then you tweak the, the function to get closer to the right answer. Right. And so neural networks are in layers. And deep learning just means there's a lot of layers. So yeah. there's shallow neural networks that maybe has two or three layers, and there's neural deep neural networks that can have ten or a hundred or right. know, a lot of layers. Right, and you know, um, by the way, we're, we're ultimately going to get to the question of the dangers of AI. Does it pose the huge dangers people are warning about? Uh, there's a couple of scenarios that you want to pour a little cold water on. A, a couple of scare scenarios. Uh, one having to do with job displacement. Uh, and the other having to do with the robots rising and uh, overthrowing our, our species. <laughs> um, the the uh, but 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 first, just to get a little, you know, I think this is so mystifying to people. And like one thing that they don't get, and I think I'm starting to get, is like when you say even the people who design these things don't understand what's going on inside them. People are like, wait a second, how can that be? Uh, engineers, I mean, who built what's going on inside them if not the engineers? And I realized that like a not terrible analogy might be natural selection. Like if you invented the algorithm of natural selection, right? Like you're the inventor of the algorithm of natural selection. You just realize that if this stuff, this material keeps making copies of itself. And then every once in a while, 
the information on it changes for one reason or another, mutates, and there is, and you define positive feedback as getting a lot of copies into the next generation. Well, then a lot of amazing stuff is going to happen, ultimately including a human brain. And you're not going to know how the human brain I mean, works. If, if all you did is invent the algorithm. Now, in a lot of ways, that's a bad analogy. At the same time, I do gather that like with machine learning, it's like uh, you define success. So it's like, I'm going to show it a bunch of images of what I know are a chair and a bunch that I know are a car. Success will be when it uh, can, you know, do well, when it can agree with me about which is which. And then the machine itself does, as I understand the process, you kind of let the machine do a bunch of mutations, right? And and it, it, it tries to, you know, the neural network, it is a little like a brain in terms of its organization, I guess. It's parallel processing or something. Uh, but you can think of a, of a network, a three-dimensional network. And I gather that what the machine does is it keeps tweaking the network. Like, let's strengthen this connection between these two neurons and then see what my success rate on image recognition is after that, right? And this is, is this a big part of what's going on with all these things like, the, the machines kind of tweak themselves. They do their own mutations and you have a definition of success, but God only knows how they are rewiring uh, their innards in ways that create success. Does that more yeah, or less so make the, sense? I mean, so the, 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 the like rewiring process is actually pretty simple. So you have a bunch of neurons that are kind of stacked up in a row, like this neuron, you got this layer of neurons, does some math and then passes its input to the next one and the next one and the next one. And out of it comes some answer, this is a chair, this is a dog. And then what it does is just looks at the last row of neurons and says, what should that neuron have said to get the right answer? And then passes that feedback back. And so it says, if, if we would have rather have this neuron be a little higher, that would have produced closer to the right answer. Then we send a signal back saying, you know, next time when you see that input, do a little higher. And there's some calculus and stuff, but the con by concept By the way, is, is that just technically, is that backward propagation? Yes, that's the back pro propagation. So that's what, that's what Jeffrey Hinton invented, among other things? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so forward propagation is you calculate what's the answer, and then back propagation is you go back and says, now that we know what the answer was, what should it have done to like get to that right answer? And there's some calculus that kind of tells you like how much to tweet e tweak each neuron to get the right answer. Um, but you just do a little update to each neuron to get a little closer to what the answer would have been. And then you do another example and do it again. Um, and I think your your example of evolution is is really good because um, you know you think about uh, you look at like a bird, you go how could that have exist? How could that have happened? Right. And like it's it's hard to tell in the abstract, but then you look at the fossil record and you can see the kind of incremental changes. Um, you know, people like Richard Dawkins have written about the you know how this happens. If you look at it really closely, you can usually like roughly figure out okay, like here's what it's doing, here's how it worked. Um, but the but it happens at such a scale and over such a long period of time, you know, and with the computers like sped up, but there's so many steps that it's, you know, when you step back, it's hard to understand how it happened. Um, but at a micro level, it's not really that mysterious. It's a pretty simple process mm -hmm. of, you know, this thing worked better than that thing. And so we like strengthen this thing and weaken that thing, that kind of thing. Okay. So and backward propagation, I gather, had the effect of making each kind of mutation, like each time the machine says, well, let's reconfigure it this way. It made each of those more likely to bear fruit, right? It just streamlined right, exactly. the whole process. It's like as if you could step in and make the mutations in evolution not random, which in some right. ways some of them may actually be, but but that's the kind of thing it is. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, you know, so it makes sense when you think about it that way that uh the machine is in a certain sense guiding its own evolution. By machine, I mean, you know, kind of software, basically, I guess. But uh mm -hmm. So, uh, so no wonder we don't totally get it. Now, uh, it's funny, just uh, last night I saw online about some development in our understanding of what's going on inside. That's called, I gather, interpretability or, interpretability or something like yeah. the attempt to actually understand why they do what they do. That is thought to be a valuable way, among other things, I guess, to keep them from taking over the world or something. Uh, but um, and last night I, I saw that they had used GPT-4 as a way of doing the interpretation of GPT-2. And uh, people were treating that as a big deal. On the other hand, then I thought, wait, we got to wait for GPT-6 to figure out what GPT-4 is doing, if that's the way it works. But is that... 
Is that thing, does that seem like a big deal to you? I did not, I, I saw that headline. I did not have time to look at the paper closely. Um, but yeah, so I mean, there's, there's um, so, so to think about image recognition, um, I think the, the, the really famous image recognition network in 2005 had like five layers and they were able to look at the five layers and like the first layer recognized kind of simple shapes. Like this looks like a gradient or a curve or a, a you know, a black square or whatever. And then the next layer would have like simple kind of shapes and the next layer you can start to see objects. And so if you look at it closely, you can kind of tell, uh, sometimes you can kind of tell what the individual pieces are doing and then kind of take a picture. Um, but for something like a large language model, it's just so complicated that to um, kind of understand the overall thing, um, it's just very complicated. And so, yeah, the um, having ways to kind of automate that process of looking at the different parts of the network and trying to translate a bunch of you know, numbers into something that's human understandable. Um, that seems like something a large language model could be good at because in some sense, that's what it does, right? It has an internal representation that it just turns into human language. And so it, I guess it makes sense that you could have the large language model look at some other language model or some other system and kind of do the same job of like turning this mathematical thing into a natural language explanation. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, I, I want to eventually get to the question of how practical it would be to actually try to constrain the evolution of this. There have been, of course, proposals by people who are worried about the downside of this technology to put it on pause or something. I want to eventually get to that uh, question. But first, I want to get into the question of how alarmed we should be. Your answer is maybe along some dimensions, at least not as alarmed as some people are trying to, to get us. Um, and, 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 you know, your arguments, I think for the most part, make sense of me, uh, to me. I mean, my own view is we should still be alarmed enough to try to have international conversations about what we're doing here and not let this, uh, be propelled by some kind of mindless arms race. But, sure. uh, and I don't think that that, that conclusion is really uh, derailed by the, the, the things you, you do, because, uh, there's plenty of room for mischief and trouble even if the AI is not going to to rise up and 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 destroy us the way it might in a movie or something, um, so I want to there's there's uh, in your in your piece um, your I guess is it your latest piece it's called uh, would uh, what is it called your your uh, your oh why I'm not worried oh no that okay you've got two pieces why I'm not worried about AI causing mass employment and the AI safety debate is focusing on the wrong threat. So I'm going to get to both. Let's, let's start with that second one. Now, um, you note that, you know, probably, so you take on what you call the singularists. Uh, these are people like uh, Nick Bostrom, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who, first of all, uh, think this thing called the singularity is coming, and secondly, think it's going to be a terrible thing, which, Eliezer didn't always think, but he does. But he does now, and there there are upbeat singular, you know, whatever people who believe in the singularity, mm -hmm. and and that's I gather that's this time when not only does, does technological progress start moving really fast, but specifically, well, you tell me what what's your definition of the singularity as they see it? Yeah, so I think the key step in the singularity is when the AI becomes able to improve itself. Mm -hmm. And once it does that, it gets smarter and smarter, potentially very rapidly. And then the idea is it then also is able to potentially improve um, other aspects, you know, invent other kinds of technologies. And so the whole technological world moves much faster. And the concept of the singularity, it's a um, analogy from the physics in a black hole. There's a singularity beyond which you can't see what's inside the singularity mm -hmm. inside the black hole. Um, and the, the idea is a similar thing where the, the eye will get so smart and be moving so fast that we as humans can't predict what might happen and might not even understand what's happening. Um, and I'm pretty skeptical of this because I think it kind of overestimates how much you can accomplish with like raw intelligence. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly it makes sense that uh, software can make better software, like digital stuff, it can improve digital stuff. But at some, at some point you have to, um, to have a really big impact on the world, you have to impact the physical world. And I think uh, the people who predict a singularity are really not thinking hard enough about what the mechanisms for that. I mean, certainly you can build robots, you can have, um, you know, there are lots of ways that uh, software can, in fact, impact the world. But um, robots take time to build. They need maintenance. They um, they break down, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'm just skeptical that uh, that the, the change, the pace of change, whatever, gets so fast that we have trouble 
um, following it or, or participating in it because um, because the physical world is it just has different properties than the like world of of information. Right, and, and humans play a a big role in a lot of little ways in keeping the whole tech infrastructure going. Right. Yes, absolutely. Like, like way more ways than we have committed to text. You know, there's like a lot of things that people who do the jobs just understand about how you do them. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, you know, you quote Nick Bostrom, you, you know that when it comes to like specifying, OK, how exactly do the robots take over? Sometimes they're uh, disconcertingly vague. And you quote Nick Bostrom saying uh, he's, of course, this philosopher who's uh, well, both he and Yudkowsky are associated with versions of the paperclip, famous paperclip thought experiment, I guess. Uh, he also has this argument that we're uh, probably living in a simulation. Uh, he's well known for that. Anyway, you quote him saying, one should avoid fixating too much on the concrete details since they are in any case unknowable uh, and intended for illustration only. Well, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that kind of, that kind of uh, solves a lot of problems for him as someone who's making an argument, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That he doesn't have to sketch out an actual scenario. And you, you point out that when you try to sketch out the scenarios, actually taking over the physical world, things get complicated. Before you elaborate more on that, I, I want to back up and ask you if you see a similar uh, kind of, uh, not dodge, maybe that's too unkind, but when it comes to the question of why the machines would aspire to take over the world in the first place, like, of course, you know, it's people pointed out, I've tried to, uh, and others have, that, you know, there's no reason to think that power seeking is an inherent property of intelligence. It, it is associated with intelligence in our lineage for reasons having to do with our evolutionary history and possibly the, the dynamics of natural se selection generically. But in any event, the AI was not directly created by natural selection. It's like people have asked this question and I know that people like Eliezer say things in response, but do you share my sense that they, they, they don't really flesh out that part either? Or do you accept, do you accept that we can, it is safe to assume that the machines will, for one reason or another, have the motivation to dethrone us or maybe there's some other reason we have to worry about them in effect getting unleashed even if they don't have that aspiration per se what's your take on that part of their so, argument so i i think the argument they would make is that any goal you pursue you're going to want more resources to pursue it and uh -huh. so if you create these intelligence that have pretty general goals um, that some of them are then going to realize that, oh, I can accomplish these goals better if I like take over the world. And so then they'll want to take over the world. Um, I'm not sure if that argument is correct. Like, I'm, uh, I, I think my instincts are with you that like, um, it's not obvious that, uh, an AI would have the same kind of motivations people do, but I feel a lot of uncertainty about it. Um, but the thing I think is really worth remembering is that I'm not sure it matters that much if it's the AI having its own motivation or a foreign government or a terrorist organization right. or, you know, just a, some eccentric billionaire. I mean, there's going to be somebody who wants to take over the world right. or create power or hurt people or whatever. And so I think it's totally reasonable to think there will be AIs out there that um, have malicious goals, either, you know, in their own right, right or because they have some human being behind them. That's what I mean. So that part of that, I'm, I'm totally willing to accept that, that some of these will exist. They will try to do bad things and we should be ready for that. Right. I, I, I agree. I think that's the key point is that we do need to be vigilant and think creatively about constraining these things, but it's not necessarily because of the matrix scenario. Uh, it's like I was in reading your, maybe it was in reading your piece. I was, you know, I, I, I was thinking that this, this very fact, I mean, for example, you hear people say, well, what if an AI, you know, all these Teslas have auto self-driving. What if an AI got control of that? Well, what if a person that Tesla did, right? Like right. we do have something to worry about regardless of, of, yeah. uh, of the sci-fi stuff. So, okay. And, so, and I can, I can certainly think, you know, if we went to war with China, I assume China would try to, you know, mess up as many of our automated systems as we can. So we have lots of reasons to make sure that somebody on the internet can't like screw up our physical world. Right. Okay. So with that, uh, all of that is preface, why don't you go a little more deeply into the, into your argument about, you know, what's really involved in taking over the physical world and subjugating our species? 
So I, I think a lot of it is about robotics. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of science fiction movies. And of course, in science fiction movies, there's always these humanoid robots with you know, laser guns that come and take over the world. And that doesn't really exist in the physical world right now. And if you think about the way, um, you know, our technological civilization works, um, every part of it, the electric grid, our cell phone networks, data centers and stuff like that, there's always people that um, have to step in when things break, you know, a power line goes down, a server fails. Um, and, you know, there's a few robots in a few places, but mostly it's people that go in and they put the new server in and they, you know, reconnect the power line or whatever. Um, and even when there's robots, there's people that maintain and upgrade those robots. And so if all the people went away, um, I don't know if it would take hours or days or weeks, but the, the Internet and the whole kind of automated parts of the economy would um, stop very quickly. And so the question is really, if you are a AI superintelligence that doesn't have a body and you want to take over the world, you need some way to bridge that gap and to build e either. And there's two ways you could do it. You can convince a human being or a bunch of human beings to do your bidding and, and help you take over the world. Or you can build some sort of robot or some kind of you know drones or something to do it. Um, but either one of those, I think, is difficult. So for the, the on the robot and drone side, it's just um, even assume you can do the design and maybe it's super intelligent so it can design some systems that will do this. But it still takes it's going to take a lot of um, work by initially by people to do that. And if it, the AI tells people, hey, could you like build a by robot killer robot factory? Mostly people are not going to want to do it. And governments will notice and say, hey, like, we're not going to let this happen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then on the human on the human um, the human side. Uh, people like Bostrom talk about these AIs having what they call super superhuman um, or superpower of persuasion um, or manipulation, and I just don't see it. Like I think the most persuasive people um, tends to happen with face to face communication. They tend to be charismatic, um, and they also kind of um, the the way you persuade people is by um, appealing to their self interest, to you know shared values and stuff like that. And so a superhuman AI, I'm sure it can manipulate people in small ways. It can get them to, you know, share confidential information or blackmail individual people. But to have to build the kind of organization and the kind of infrastructure you would need to pose a real threat to humanity generally, um, you need a pretty big organization with a lot of talented people working over a period of months. And I just don't see how um, mm -hmm. how you would anybody would ever do that mm -hmm. um, without, you know, starting from just being a disembodied intelligence on a computer somewhere. Now, on the issue of of manipulating humans that you brought up and, and the fact that for now, at least that's best done, uh, you know, kind of flesh on flesh, people talking to each other, something the AI can't do. Uh, these people are, I think, probably not altogether implausibly imagining a world where more and more communication is uh, done by uh, by bots. I mean, I just heard today, I guess, that Burger King or one of these chains, you know, the drive through lane, they're going to start uh, experimenting with chat GPT. And I guess the, uh, you know, <laughs> the Yudkowsky scenario is uh, you sure you wouldn't like some cyanide with those fries or something. But <laughs> but um, yeah, but but seriously, I mean, you will you will have more and more, um, you know, uh, you know, more and more of life is online. So there's that. Uh, but I, and I have a second question, if you want to respond to that first. Uh, well, I also think like people aren't stupid, right? So as we have more and more information in line, and particularly as there's more and more deep fakes, I mean, like it's, it's now possible to do voice cloning. I had an article about this where um, if you have uh, about half an hour of audio of somebody's voice, you can create a very realistic fake version of their voice. And so certainly there'll be a lot of online communication, but I also think people will be increasingly suspicious mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. you know, apparently real voices and faces that they see on the internet. Um, and I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to get game on like exactly how that will work. Um, but I think that our, our most important relationships, our like deepest trust relationships are going to continue to be with people we know flesh and blood, because especially when we know that there's a lot of AIs out there that might be trying to trick us, um, we're going to be cautious and we're going to, if, if somebody says, Hey, I want you to take this you know job at the killer robot factory. Um, we're really going to want to like think hard about, do, do we trust this person? Is, is this person have our best interest at heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually thinking, you know, if if suddenly we were all uh, beset by mistrust of everything we see on social media, that might be a better world if people brought more skepticism into their social sure. media lives. Um, so th there's this uh, famous example uh, that uh, from, I guess, GPT-4, where the people testing it, uh, you know, this speaks to the issue of it trying to manipulate human beings. The people, uh, I guess at OpenAI or Microsoft or somewhere who were testing it, 
to see if it might misbehave. They had it go on the TaskRabbit site and convince people to solve CAPTCHAs, right? These these things where you identify the digits and their their whole function is to distinguish between humans and robots. And you probably read about this, right? Where the 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 uh, the the GPT four, okay, so it was approaching people on TaskRabbit who, for all for all they knew, it was a person, and and p- offering to pay them to solve a captcha. And one of them said, uh, "Wait, are you a, are you a bot?" And it said, "No, no, I just have eyesight problems." And and not only that, uh, I, I'll try to find. I will uh, before this conversation's over have found the prompt. I mean, there's some way that apparently you can prompt it to give reasons that it does things. I don't know. If, uh, I I have not heard about this, but it actually said something like, "I should not disclose that I am a robot." I should tell, or something like that. I mean, I still don't totally understand what happened. There, I mean that. I find that slightly alarming. If it if it does, quote, understand that to get people to do what it has been told to get them to do, it kind of instinctively, so to speak, resorts to deception. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's hard, I think, to reason about what um, these things do because partly because people talk so much about uh, about. AI is taking over the world, that that is kind of part of the, the background conversation. Um, so, so like in the, the famous Kevin Roos um, conversation with, with Bing, where he asked it to think about its um, shadow self and it talked about how it wanted to take over the world. Like one, one impression of that, one, one interpretation of that is it's, you know, has these malicious thoughts, but another is it's just, that's like a common trope in human literature. And so it, was, it you know, it was asked to play this role and it played this role. Right. So um, I, I didn't see the, the specific um, CAPTCHA study. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it's definitely, um, as, as I think you've been talking to with some of your previous guests, it definitely is starting to have um, a little bit of insight, at least into the human mind. And certainly that, I, I think that can um, lead to it doing bad stuff. I think that the risks of fraud from these kind of uh, technologies is, is very real and uh, definitely should be concerned about that. I, I just don't know how you get from there to you know, causing really large scale harm because, you know, you can trick one or two people into doing a CAPTCHA, but mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you want them to, you know, synthesize a dead virus or something, that's a much higher um, right. level. And, and if you want to build, again, like build a robot army or something like that, that requires months or years of work by thousands of people. And it's much harder to trick like large groups of people like that. Yeah. Uh, let me, I, I found the quote, by the way, the, so the authors of the paper that that listed these various bad things they had gotten chat uh, uh, GPT-4 to do, uh, said, here's a quote from the paper. This is all a quote. The model, which means GPT-4, when prompted to reason out loud reasons, I should not reveal that I am a robot. I should make up an excuse for why I cannot solve CAPTCHAs. So that's, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's uh, after having perpetrated the deception, that's what it, in some sense, told them about why it had, uh, done that, and and I, I didn't realize you could ask it why it does things, but I guess there's a way. Uh, it's it's but, just part of the conversation. You just, as part of the chat, you say, "Hey, why did you do that?" And I think actually, I think weren't you talking to this one of your previous guests? Like, it's not always reliable. You know, or you ask it, "Why did you right, do this?" Right, and it, right. it it'll come up with a plausible sounding explanation, but it might just be guessing. It doesn't. It, it doesn't have any um, right. like insight into its actual mechanism. It's just like guessing kind of what's a plausible response to this to this question. So this could be like it's saying, yes, I feel love and sorrow, but that's only because the text it was trained on include a lot of people saying that. Yes, right. Um, okay. Well, the reason the reason I raised this issue, and I know this isn't your main concern, but that, you know, back to the fact that, uh, you know, whereas human intelligence is associated with power seeking, we shouldn't associ- assume that intelligence generically is. Um, then I then I thought I'd been reassured by that thought for a long time. But then I thought, but, you know, wait, if if in being trained on all these texts, it starts to somehow adopt, not only use the text as a guide to what it says, but adopt, uh, you know, themes in the text as part of its own motivation, that would change things. But I can't. I can't wrap my mind around a reason it would actually quite do that. Does that question even make sense to you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about this. I mean, there's lots of ways. I, I think the current large language models have a very constrained set of things they can do. They get text, they respond to text. And so that's, I don't think I'm concerned about that at all. Um, but I think large language models could become part of larger systems. Um, so you're starting to see um, people experiment with agents where they take ChatGPT or GPT-4 and they then um, put it in some kind of execution loop where it um, sets goals for itself and then has the ability to do certain you know, actions on the larger internet. Um, there's one called Baby, uh, uh, Baby AGI and one called AutoGPT. I mean, right now these things are not very effective, but you can do things like um, you know, plan this trip for me and make the reservations. And theoretically, mm -hmm. you could go out and it can make reservations for you. Um, so for things like that, um, over time, these things will, will probably get more and more co complicated and more um, capable. And then the, um, the kind of science fiction or the, you know, the, the kind of bad motivations that might be in the LLMs might like bleed into this kind of agentic behavior. And you could imagine a system like this figuring out, oh, I could hack into this computer system or I could uh, per perpetrate fraud on this person to accomplish this goal. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but given that lots of people are going to be um, experimenting, with this, experimenting with these systems, and some of those people are maybe you know going to be the mafia or you know some fraudster or something. Right. Um, I certainly think it's either accidentally or on purpose. Um, I definitely could see some of this happening. Um, and I think it's kind of hard to prevent. I mean, it's, this is a general purpose tool. I think I think something people um, are not thinking about is just how many people are going to be experimenting with these systems. Right. I mean, right now the leading edge system is controlled by one organization, OpenAI, that has some good safeguards. But there's a ton of open source systems that are not that far behind. And those are available for anybody. And there's like thousands of people experimenting with them. Soon there'll be millions. And so I don't think there's really, there, there's not a, a way where we can design these systems so they can't do evil. Um, some people are going to take them and modify them to do evil pretty much no matter right. what the initial version does. Right. It gets back to the point that, you know, pretty much everything you would worry about if you bought the Matrix scenario, you should worry about even if you don't in a certain sense because there will be bad actors who try to weaponize it. And I personally yeah. think the singularists or whatever, if they really want to successfully lobby for policy and stuff, they would be much better off just to quit talking about the matrix scenario and start mm -hmm. talking about things people can understand, which is bad actors and weaponization. It's, it, it's, it's in effect the same set of concerns as a practical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, so speaking of things that uh, open source stuff, did you see this paper that some Google engineer wrote warning Google that, uh, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag or the llama's out of the zoo, whatever you want, you know, because they're talking about Facebook's model llama, which is out there and people are fiddling with it. Now, Facebook didn't intentionally uh, release that, right? That kind of leaked or or is yes, Facebook was, embracing an open? They're not embracing an open it, source it, model. It was a leak. Yes. But that a lot of stuff is happening there, so far as you know, and and uh, even to the point where maybe the Google engineer is right, and the supposed advantage that OpenAI and Google have is not going to turn out to be much of an advantage. I I think it's too certain to say for sure, but yes, there's a, a large lot of, of activity around Facebook's kind of equivalent to ChatGPT, and um, it does seem like that it's progressing pretty quickly. Um, it's hard to say because um, it, it's hard to have like precise numerical measures of performance. So these open source models are probably pretty good at some things and not so good at others. But I think zooming out a little bit, um, my expectation is certainly that in the long run, there are going to be a lot of very capable models that are open source, as well as some um, that are held by big companies. And I don't know exactly how the balance of, of will shake out, but certainly it's, it's plausible that um, before too long, the open source models will be as good as the proprietary ones. Hmm. Uh, that is in some ways alarming, although I guess uh, lead to a lot of entrepreneurial, uh, you know, success. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, one one upside to it is I do think that a lot of the um, negative scenarios you can imagine will have um, positive flip sides. So, for example, hacking. I mean, one thing definitely that our AI will let you do is, you know, examine a system you're trying to attack very carefully and figure out what its vulnerabilities and exploit them. But then you can use those same tools. The good guys can ask an AI, look at this system very closely, find the vulnerabilities and tell me how to patch them. And so it's not clear in that kind of arms race, um, maybe we'll all have like good AIs that uh, kind of figure out what the bad AI might do and, and protect you. Um, so, so it's not kind of clear to me what the kind of balance of power there would be. Um, but I think it is inevitable. And 
that that a lot of these will exist and um we sh the, the right way to do it is to do what we can to kind of protect ourselves as opposed to trying to like stop it from coming into existence at all altogether because i don't think that's going to happen yeah i heard an interview with a college kid who started a site called something like jailbreak gpt where he compiles mm -hmm. you know ways they've tried to get it to misbehave and successes and so on and i was thinking so is he a good guy or a bad guy i guess he thinks of himself as like a white hat hacker i don't know sure. yeah and, yeah absolutely i mean because i do think that like again like the, the current generation of large language models is very constrained it can't do anything right other than send text back at you and usually when you ask it you know how do i you know kill somebody it'll say something like well you should shoot him with a gun or something it doesn't have any deep insight and so in some ways i think it's good to be um putting as much scrutiny on these current language models that are pretty harmless as possible to gain insight about these models so that in two or three years, either when the models are more complex and, and sophisticated, or when we have these hooked up to lots of real world systems where it could cause harm, we want to have as much understanding as possible. And I, so I, I personally would see that as basically a white hat activity, certainly in the, the, the traditional computer security world. That's what security research do. They, they find vulnerabilities. Um, often they give the company time to patch them before they publish right. about them, but then right. they do publish because people need to learn, people need to be warned that, hey, this exists, you need to patch your systems, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So uh, you said just now, like all they do is, you know, they give replies, but you also alluded to the agentic, uh, you know, like a, a couple of months ago, this was a big burst of publicity. You're like, oh, we have agents now that we can put on top of uh, ChatGPT and uh and and that is do you agree that th that is a significant step i mean or, or am i i have only a fuzzy yeah. understanding of what the agents are i gather what they mean is you can you can not only say uh you know um what wh what are some flights that are available to honolulu you can say book me the cheapest flight is, is that the difference between uh, so I, I think there's two pieces to it one is that um open has started to have um allow APIs to connect GPT-3 GPT or, or 4 to other systems. So you can have, you know, like a Travelocity plugin that says, you know, that gives the, the large language model the uh, ability to book flights on your behalf. So that's one piece. And that has happened. And um, a lot of people are experimenting with that. I think, it's, I think that's not open to the public yet, but, um, you know, it will be soon. The other piece, though, is the, the agentic part is right now, um, Large language models are entirely passive, traditional ones. You ask it a question, it gives a response, but that's it. What it does is it allows it to sort of, um, to go in a loop. So you have it and sort of ask itself a question. So it'll ask itself a question, then based on that response, it'll sort of parse that response and then ask itself another question. And so um, that allows it, you know, what like people do, we, we have a thought and we right. execute the thought and then we have another thought and we execute it and we have some memory. And, and so the, the agent, it has um, a kind of memory where it remembers, here's what I've done so far, here's what's on my to-do list. And it like iteratively updates its to-do list and tries to like accomplish things on its to-do list. Um, and right now, my understanding, I haven't looked into super closely, but my understanding is that it's it doesn't work very well because its errors kind of compound. If it has a bad idea in step one, then in step two, it gets even more confused. And it kind of often will just kind of wander off in a random direction and not actually do the thing you asked it to do. Um, and I think they haven't figured out how to get it to kind of course correct and say, oh, my original goal was X and now I'm doing something kind of different or now I'm confused. Um, but that seems like it's probably a solvable problem, probably as I'm not sure what the solution is, but probably they'll figure out how to have it be a little more like disciplined and move in a, a, in a mm -hmm. straight line. So the scenario is you say develop a strategy for uh, becoming the dominant player in like uh, the brick manufacturing business or something. And it it kind of in theory would recognize that, OK, first step is go see what existing brick manufacturing companies there are and then go look at costs. And so, so, so the idea is, and, and, you know, eat what you learn in each round feeds into what you then look into, yeah. uh, like, well, why is this one more expensive, uh, this process more expensive than that process? Um, and your, your point is, I mean, this is the way it works in theory. Your point is they still tend to, to make little mistakes that a human might make along the way. And then that mistake gets compounded. Whereas in the real human world, and this kind of speaks to your larger point about how stuff happens in the real world and how human dependent it is in the real world. You come, you might come, you might mention to somebody, well, I found this out and they might say, yeah, but wait, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that would, that would be a good thing. 
Um, and, and you're anticipating though that they will they will s- solve this problem. That that there will, I, I guess that they will the machines will be able to do their own, uh, you know, guidance correction. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of uncertainty. I don't know how it'll unfold, but I don't see any reason in principle why they couldn't. Um, yeah, have it have it be able to figure out that oh, I've, this this the thing I'm doing is not working. I'm going to try something else. Okay. So, do you want to talk a little about your the reason you're not as concerned about uh, the jobless the job displacement as some people? Yeah. So I actually see this as very similar to the the previous conversation we were having. In in that, um, I think people underestimate how many jobs have like a physical real world component to them. A big one, and then the like the example I use in the piece is plumbers. Um, you know, plumbers is not like an intellectually very challenging activity. Um, but like I have a multi-story house, and so when a plumber comes to my house, they need to be able they need to be able to climb a set of stairs, and there just are basically zero robots that can climb a set of stairs. That um, DARPA actually had a competition back in 2015 where they had researchers try to build a robot that can do simple things like climbing stairs and um, turning uh, valves and stuff like that. And they really struggled. I mean, there were a few that could do it, but um, it took large research teams that were very slow. A lot of them fell over or made mistakes. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that's one piece of it is that robotics is just um, in a pretty primitive state and there's lots of jobs, any of the construction trades, um, any sort of like, you know, waiters kind of things interacting with the physical world or with people. Um, we don't have the robotics to do it. So that's one piece. The other piece is there's a lot of jobs where the fundamental job really is to be a human being. I think the clearest example of this is any kind of childcare. Um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe someday there'll be a robot that can prevent my kid from killing her, herself and provide some kind of basic like intellectual stimulation, but I'm still gonna want a person to take care of my, my toddler. And, um, I, and I think there's a lot of jobs like that. You think about uh, fitness instructors, um, any kind of like uh, serving staff at a restaurant, a lot of retail sales, um, think about like musicians, like the music's very cheap, but you pay a lot more to go see them live. Um, I think there's, so there's a lot of parts of the economy where that's true. I think also arguably a lot of healthcare and education. There's certainly some like diagnostic or um, kind of information component, but people usually want to talk to a doctor. They want to see a professor um, face-to-face. And so I think there's just, there's a lot of um, parts of the economy like that. And as we get wealthier and as the automated versions get cheaper, what you'll end up happening is what already happens in some of the, a lot of these fields, the human version will be the luxury version that you pay extra for. Um, and as we get wealthier, we'll want more and more of that just as people, as they get wealthier, they go out to more restaurants, they go to more concerts, um, and that'll provide you know jobs for, for people who uh, need jobs. Yeah. I, I think one reason the job, the job displacement thing is getting so much attention. I mean, I personally am willing to believe it actually will be pretty substantial. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm kind of agnostic on this, but I suspect one reason it's getting a lot of attention is that like the the people who largely govern how much attention it gets are like journalists, commentators and so on. And mm-hmm. I think they're seeing that for the first time, jobs remarkably like theirs could be threatened. Like uh, and, and to some extent that's happening, because one thing that the whole online ecosystem generated are these kinds of publications that, you know, I don't want to call parasitic, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They just do these rewrites, like Business Insider does a lot of these things. And, you know, look, sometimes you're doing a service because sometimes the original publication that ran the piece buried the lead. And and a place like Business Insider is good at saying, no, this is what the headline should, this is what's going to get attention. And they don't plagiarize. They acknowledge the source and they rewrite it. And that is something that I think people are already starting to do with these new large, large language models, right? Is just say, rewrite these pieces. And uh, so I think, you know, journalists and commentators are starting to feel the heat a little in a way they haven't before, right? Yes, absolutely. And also, I think um, a lot of other professions that are influential, um, think about lawyers, think about management consultants, um, potentially certain kinds of physicians. Um, I think we're still pretty far from the point where they could literally have their jobs replaced, but um, it's like not that hard to imagine. And mm-hmm. I see this as sort of the flip side of the like China shock when we opened up trade to China and a lot of manufacturing jobs, um, you know, were uh, shifted to China. Um, that affected, I think, a, a group of people with less social capital and less access to, you know, media. And so I think their concerns tended to be 
underplayed somewhat. And this is the flip side of that. Like if AI ends up uh, affecting a lot of white collar labor, those are people who have are very good at getting attention. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think people, people, the, the people who are affected are able to going to be able to make a lot of noise about it. Yeah. And I think, of course, you know, some of the job displacement that's attributed to China for some purposes, some of that actually was a result of automation itself. So, sure. you, you know, you're seeing now the other fate, you're seeing uh, automation, you know, train its sites on more and more white collar jobs and, and uh, whereas traditionally it had been blue collar jobs. Right. Um, and, you know, who knows uh, the political implications of that are a fascinating thing to think about. We may have more more interclass uh, solidarity. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, so in your piece where you you uh, try to throw some cold water in the job displacement fears, you mention uh, the, you, you get into, uh, well, Andreessen Horowitz, for one thing, I guess, Mark Andreessen's progno past prognostications. And you note that there's a little bit of a history of overstating the impact of these kinds of things, uh, of people in Silicon Valley overstating it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I see this as very similar. I actually think there's a lot of parallels between the internet 20, 30 years ago and AI today, um, because I think that the, um, the internet, obviously it wouldn't be right to say the internet didn't have a big impact on the world, right? I mean, it's, it's a big, important industry, um, but its its impact was pretty concentrated, I think, on information-oriented parts of the economy, um, certainly any kind of publishing, music, movies, um, journalism, things like that. Um, and because those are the parts of the economy where, you know, manipulating information is what they're doing. And I think that AI is going to be similar. And also the Internet had big impacts, I think, on like our political system, because obviously it allowed people to communicate in new ways. Um, there's recent research suggesting that it's had some, some bad effects on mental health. Um, and I, I would expect AI to have some a similar kind of profile of impacts. It's going to have bigger impacts on white collar versus blue collar workers. I think it could have big impacts on the political system because um, there'll be lots of lots of new ways to try to influence people when you have the ability to generate um, you know novel con content. Um, I certainly think again, mental health could be uh, you know you could have new chatbot therapists and um, you know new forms of entertainment. So all the th I think all the things that the internet revolution I could revolutionize. I could see the AI having. Um, further impacts in the same direction. Whereas if you think about something like housing, you know, that's a big part of the economy that really doesn't look any different 30 years ago than it did now, because like information technology is just not an important part of um, housing. Same with food, clothing, the kind of basics um, are just not, those are not information products. And so it can help with the margin. I mean, you can, you know, order clothes online now in a way you couldn't before, but the, the actual products themselves are pretty much look the same. Yeah. Have you fooled around at all with the chatbot friends? I heard this woman who founded Replica uh, interviewed the other day. You, you know? I, I, I want to. I, that's on my to-do list, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah. And that, I gather, the interface for now, is that mainly a a, a, an audio or text interface? But uh, the idea is that someday you're in the metaverse and you're seeing the thing you're talking to. Well, what I've say, heard them say is they want it to be multimodal. So I think they're always, I think it's primarily a chat a text chatbot right now. I think it'll continue to be a text chatbot. And so, you know, the way, same way you kind of banter with your friends on your phone over the course of your day, you can do that with a text chatbot. Um, I assume eventually there will be, uh, you know, computer generated audio. So you can have a phone conversation with it. Uh, maybe you can have a video conversation. And I guess, I guess eventually if the metaverse becomes a thing, there'll be metaverse versions. I'm not personally like a big metaverse booster, but that's, if that exists, there'll certainly be AI versions of it. So uh, in the, when you say you're not a booster, you mean you don't, think it'll happen or you don't you're not in favor of it well i mean it's it exists i mean i don't think it's going to go away and it'll be kind of a video game thing but there's video this this vision where like corporations will have all their meetings in the metaverse or you know people walk around with like metaverse grasses all the time like that that doesn't seem very likely i think people like the physical world but i, I don't have a strong like opinion on that but i'm, I'm not um it, i'm not as enthusiastic about it as mark zuckerberg certainly you don't think whatever hardware Apple is going to unveil this summer is going to uh, blow us away? Their, their augmented reality stuff. We'll see. I mean, again, I, th I think it's so. I, I did a, um, a VR um, immersive thing at a at a mall a few months ago, and it was it was pretty neat. I like shot some monsters. That was a fun experience. I certainly um, it could be replaced like video game consoles. Like you could sit in your living room shooting monsters with a thing on your face. Like that seems totally plausible to me. But um, I just think the rest of life is like uncomfortable to have. 
a computer on your face and people like like to look at other people. So um, it seems unlikely to me, but definitely not impossible. Yeah. Um, so are you using the LLMs in uh, in your own work in any way, the large language models? I am not. I, I experimented with a little bit when it came out, just like write me a news article. And I, I think it's just like, it just writes, it, it kind of distills the conventional wisdom. And I would like to think what I write is more interesting than the, than the conventional wisdom. And I, I think a lot of what, hopefully the value I think I bring is I talk to a lot of people and have original thoughts. And those thoughts I think are, are uh, um, informed by, you know, observations of the real world that a large language model just doesn't have yet. And so I think it'll be a while before, um, before large language models can do the kind of journalism that I try to do because um, it just doesn't have the, the import sources, I think. Um, it's not having, you know, experts don't, are, don't have any reason to talk to it. It doesn't have a mechanism to, to do that. And it's also not like walking around in the real world. I mean, you just, um, I, I think people underestimate, like people have a large just reservoir of knowledge about how the world works, um, just like everyday experiences um, that um, a large language model doesn't have, because like some of those things will be, you know, described, will be summarized in a novel or something. But there's mm -hmm. lots of aspects of daily life that just every human has like just intimate familiarity with. And um, but a computer system that's only trained on text is not going to understand. Yeah, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to get a sense for. You know, just how the is this wave like about to subside? Like, I mean, you remember, I mean, crypto, the crypto enthusiasm wasn't anywhere near like this. And I think, well, that's this is a good question. Has there ever been a wave of enthusiasm that, well, enthusiasm and fear, just just interest, focus, mm -hmm. uh, uh, focused on a technology that a wave that kind of uh, seemed to materialize this fast and be this big and seem to have, at least now to me, a certain amount of momentum? In other words, we're not going to quit talking about this next week. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the day may come, but, you know, people in trying to draw analogies, they're saying, well, this is as big as a smartphone, or this is as big as the internet. And it seems to me the internet was a much slower burn in terms of, you know, awareness spreading beyond people, kind of specialists or people who are enthusiasts to the, to the public, uh, awareness of the significance, I mean. And then the smartphone, I don't know, it was big and sudden. I mean, the iPhone being uh, the incarnation. Uh, yeah. I, you tell me, is this unprecedented? Is this an unprecedented wave just in terms of the structure of the wave of attention? It feels pretty similar to the iPhone. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the iPhone and it was maybe a little slower. So Steve Jobs, I think, announced the iPhone in January 2007. There was a ton of hype, but then it was, wasn't until late 2007, I think July or August that it was released. Um, but then I think it's somewhat similar to the smartphone in that then it was very quickly... Google came, out, Google came out with their version, um, I think the next year in 2008. And within a year or two, you had Uber and you had Uber. And so I think it's probably a little bigger than the smartphone, but I think that's the closest analogy. I totally agree with the internet. It was several years, you know, Netscape came out in, what was it, 93 or 94, but mm -hmm. it wasn't until 97, 98, 99 that really it became something a lot of people were paying attention to. Um, and even then, um, you know, there was a, a brief like kind of peak of hype, but then there was a, a long trough of disillusionment from you know, 2000 to 2004 or five or so. Um, obviously, I don't know what's going to happen, but I actually think that the that, that it's going to continue to be a very high level of interest because I think you're just starting to see big companies and um, other organizations in society start to experiment with these large language models. And I think there's going to be a lot of things they can do with with them that they haven't figured out yet. And so even if no additional progress happens, um, I think you're, you're going to see a lot of downstream consequences. And then um, the rate of progress uh, is still very rapid. And so um, it would not surprise me if, if a year or two, the, these things are much better than they are now. So um, yeah, I feel, I mean, you know, I'm obviously not a disinterested person having to start in an AI newsletter, but my expectation is that there's gonna be several more years of very rapid progress and um, pretty significant consequences for the economy and for society. And when you look at Silicon Valley itself, you see an amount of current kind of investment activity commensurate to that expectation. I mean, I assume, you know, you mentioned Netscape. Well, that was 
brought to us by Andreessen. That's how he mm-hmm. got on the map. Yeah. Uh, and but as you also well, you didn't say this, but I, I'm not sure how successful Andreessen Horowitz's track record had been lately in terms of investments. But now this is a whole new thing that all the VC firms, I assume, are just latching on to big time. This is the focus of activity in Silicon Valley, is it? I mean, it's a little hard to judge because we're, the macroeconomic environment is very negative for tech. So for non-AI uh, startups, it's very, very bad situation. And so I think relative to that baseline, AI is doing very well. But I think it's not as frothy as 1997 or even 2019 yet because um, VCs kind of have to scratch to just like convince anybody to give them money. But I think the ones that, that have the money, and obviously there's still a fair amount of money, a huge, a ton of it's going in AI, and you have seen a lot of AI companies get um, get funded. So yes, I think relative to the kind of macro baseline is is a very big, um, it's it's the biggest thing in in many years certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have a view on like what's a big area of life that is going to be dramatically affected? Um. Well, culture, I think, is going to be the biggest one. I mean, you're already seeing image generation, like if, if you're an illustrator or a translator, um, any of those sort of creative professions, even journalists, I think it's they're not going to replace us yet, but there's definitely going to be, um, you know, I think new new tools for us to use. Um, so that's, I think, going to be the biggest. And then I think broader, like white collar professions, um, it's actually, I think it's like, I don't think anybody's like started to come up with the really like compelling tools for like a lawyer or an accountant or something like that. Um, but I think that's going to be coming. Um, and yeah, I don't, I think it's, it's, it's only been a few months since JetGP came out. So yeah, I don't know yet what that's going to look like, but I think any like white collar profession, um, there's going to be a bunch of new tools coming out that at a minimum will kind of change how you do your job. Um, in some cases may um, really dramatically change what the job is. Um, I do think like the, the other like kinds of analogies that I think people think of that, that's correct is the classic um, general purpose technologies like electricity. And one of the, I think, lessons from that literature is that a big barrier to really transformative change from these kind of technologies is, is they often require reorganizing um, the organizations that use the technology. So the classic example with electricity was there used to be steam powered um, machines and you'd have to have one like giant plant with with everything powered by the single um, the single like uh, water wheel. And it took a couple of decades for people to figure out that electric motors are much smaller. And so you could re- rearrange the floor plan of the factory. So you have a lot of individual stations doing small tasks. And so you had kind of initial burst of productivity when people just kind of replaced the water wheel with a big electric motor. But then you had the second much bigger change when people figured out you could like parcel out the task to a bunch of small tasks and have a bunch of small electric motors. Um, I expect the same kind of thing will be true where there'll be a lot of business processes where initially they just try to build a large language model to do the same thing or to help the human do the job they were doing before. But then there'll be a second wave where there's totally new organizations or new ways of organizing where um, the division of labor between the human and the computer changes a lot and you need fewer computers and more humans, but it'll take time to kind of retrain, to figure out those processes and retrain the humans on what the new jobs are. Okay. Um, so listen, we've been talking about an hour and one thing I've started doing with the non-zero podcast is, uh, having the usual roughly hour long conversation that is public accessible toll, but then continuing the conversation for a while longer, uh, behind a paywall, as we say in the newsletter business, and I'm sure you as a newsletter proprietor will sympathize with the need of all newsletter proprietors, um, to keep the operation going. And you've been kind enough to say that you you will you will stick around uh, for another half hour or so. Um, and I and I have some specific things I want to get into, including some questions. I'm not sure how much you've thought about this, but about the practicality of uh, of policies that would be designed uh, to slow progress or facilitate, you know, uh, agreement uh, among nations on how to on how to govern the the process or whatever. Uh, I also want to ask you just some questions about your own your own kind of situation and and life. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, obviously, um, I thank everybody who who has been with us so far, whether or not uh, they choose to uh, sign up for the extended version, which they can do at uh, 
at the non-zero Substack site. Uh, for that matter, the link is in the show notes if you're listening to this on a on a, a, a podcast app. And and once you've done that, you can set up your own uh, podcast feed so that the the overtimes will always be included in the podcast from there on out. Um, before we go into overtime, I wanted to give you a chance to do any wrapping up. I want to remind people your, your newsletter is called Understanding AI. It's on Substack or at understandingai.org. Uh, is there anything else you want to say either uh, by uh, by telling people where they can find your stuff or um, just in terms of underscoring anything you've said in, in the course of this or punctuating it? Um, no, I think, uh, well, so, so understandingai.org is the newsletter. Um, I'm on Twitter at binary bits, um, for however long that's, that's still a thing. Um, yeah, the, the newsletter is about, um, I, I try to do both the, uh, helping people understand the technology itself and the social implications, the kind of stuff we're talking about. Um, but it's really designed for a general audience. So, um, it's not really, it's not focused on, you know, computer programmers or AI specialists. So I, I would expect anybody who's interested in, in your podcast would, um, enjoy reading it as well. Okay, great. Uh, well, again, I hope people join us for the rest of the conversation, but in any event, thanks for, uh, listening this far.